Welcome to Former Adventist Podcast. Grab a cup of coffee and join Colleen Tinker and Nikki Stevenson as they discuss their life after Adventism. Welcome to Former Adventist Podcast. I'm Nikki Stevenson. And I'm Colleen Tinker. And Colleen, we are going to launch into Daniel chapter 12 today. Now, we we said last week that we were going to finish the book of Daniel this week. Oops. (laughs) (laughs) Then we dug in and Uh decided, nope, we're going to break that up. Yes, we are. So we will be covering the first three verses of this amazing chapter today. It is amazing. And three verses was a lot. It took us some hours, didn't it? Yeah. Yeah, we realized quickly we wouldn't be able to get through it all in one. So sorry, hang in there, guys. We're almost done. (laughs) But it's been such an awesome ride. I wouldn't have missed it. Now, before we get into our topic for today, I just wanted to talk to you a little bit, Colleen. We are coming into a very special season. We sure are. For Life Assurance Ministries Mm -hmm. and for former Adventists in general. We're coming up to the Former Adventist Fellowship Conference. It's the highlight of the year. (laughs) (laughs) Now, the title is God's Love Exposed. Can you talk just a little bit about why this title? What's behind it? What is it about? I think most of us who've been Adventists know that Adventists pride themselves on worshiping a God of love, Mm -hmm. a God who would never permanently punish somebody, would never pour out wrath, would never do anything that seems to go against what an Adventist perceives of as love. Mm -hmm. And it has struck us for years now that this definition of love is very secular. It's based on human nature, not on what the Bible reveals about God. And when you look at the Bible, God's love involves all of His attributes equally, Mm -hmm. including justice, mercy, love, wrath, omnipresence. It's Everything is part of God's love. Mm -hmm. So we're going to look at God's love exposed through the biblical doctrines that Adventism has perverted. We're going to look at the biblical side of things such as revelation. How does God reveal himself? And what is revelation? You know, we all had Ellen White as a lesser light, but she was inspired just like the Bible writers. How does God reveal himself? And how does God reveal himself? Through the nature of man, through the nature of his wrath and punishment, through the nature of family. We're going to look at things that have shaped the Adventist worldview and show how through the Bible those things are fully revealed as God reveals himself and his love. I love that. It makes me think of us talking about taking back Daniel. Mm-hmm. And we are taking back the doctrine of God's love yes. because they really do pride themselves on, oh, well, the Christians believe in hellfire and brimstone, but we know a loving God. Right. And you get that even from people who've been converted out of Protestantism into Adventism. Absolutely. They'll talk about, well, the Adventists know this God of love. Well, there's a lot that can be said there about how those poor people have been deceived. Yeah. But this is going to deal with the simplicity, the divine simplicity of God and how his love manifests in all these places. I'm really excited about this one. Yeah, me too. So if you want to sign up to come join us, visit proclamationmagazine.com. Right at the top of the page, you're going to see the logo for the conference. You can click on that. It'll give you the schedule. It'll give you the speakers and the details and, and how to sign up. The conference is free to attend, but some of you have asked, how can I help support lamb and pay my way. Mm-hmm. And we would say to you that the cost is about a hundred ahead. So right. if you wanted to come and you wanted to donate, that would be wonderful. But money is not an issue we want you to Here. worry about. We want you to come yeah. and listen. There is an online option where you can sign up and you can participate in breakout sessions by Zoom. But we really want to encourage all of you to come in person. Nikki, you have some special thoughts about that. Why do you think people should be here in person? There's really no way to explain what it's like to sit across the table or side by side with others who've walked through your journey to have those moments uh, between sessions, in breakouts, at meals where you can share your story, Mm -hmm. pray for each other and be together in such a unique way, you know, we've all gotten so used to virtual community and there are blessings that come from that, but there's a lot that gets lost there too. That's right. That we get to experience when we're together. And so it really is worth the journey to come at least once 
And it's true. We want to meet you. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, there's a feeling of terminal uniqueness a lot of times. Mm-hmm. And just today I got an email that said, you know, I don't know anyone else who's gone through this. And I'm hoping to find somebody who understands what I'm going through. There are a lot of us who understand, a mm-hmm. lot of us who have gone through this. Mm-hmm. At the conference, we're there together and we share that experience and that background. And it's just, it's like a family reunion in many ways. So people are coming from different places. We actually have a a couple of people who have already bought their tickets and are coming up from Brazil for this conference. (laughs) We're going to hear from one of them in a faith story. And some of you already have heard Kaspar's Oslins presenting in the past, but he is no longer in England. He's on faculty at Southern Seminary in Kentucky, the Southern Baptist Seminary, and he will be here presenting as well. We're also going to feature on Friday night Jim Baber, and some of you have been following his YouTube channel, Academy Apologia, and he has done excellent research into Adventism. He has never been an Adventist, but he is a true apologist who does really deep and careful research, and he's going to present some of his own impressions about Adventism on Friday night. So, there's just some exciting stuff that's coming, and we really hope you'll join us. So, the conference convenes February 17th through the 19th. So, go to that website, proclamationmagazine.com, click on the link, and sign up. We'll see you. We look forward to it. (laughs) So, now, Colleen, Daniel chapter 12. Okay, Here the we go. last chapter. I, I never expected to have the experience I had in Daniel. No, me neither. I kind of feel like we're going to leave an old friend here, except that something that I'm going to take with me has changed everything. Yeah, this is exciting. And you know, it, I know it, it might sound silly, but I can't wait to meet Daniel. <laughs> I feel the same way. Oh my goodness, what he lived through and what he experienced in those visions that left him weak and pale and filled with information that nobody else on earth understood, including himself, really. Mm -hmm. But he left it here for us. So, Nikki, I've already said that we're going to only do three verses because these are amazingly packed verses. Would you mind reading those three verses before we start talking through what we've learned? Okay. Now, at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise, and there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time, and at that time, your people, everyone who's found written in the book, will be rescued. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt." Those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightest of the expanse of heaven, and those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Such amazing language. Yes, it is. Beautiful. It is. Well, let's just review. In Daniel 11, the first part of the chapter, verses 1 through 35, described in detail events that have already taken place, beginning with the effects of Medo-Persia on the nation of Israel, moving into what happened to Israel under the rule of Greece under Alexander the Great, and then in the divided kingdom of Greece. And that's where a lot of those first 35 verses camped. What happened in the divided kingdom where Israel was caught between the Ptolemies of Egypt and the Seleucids of Syria, the king of the north and the king of the south. And it ended up in verse 35 with the horrible deeds of Antiochus Epiphanes as he trampled Israel after he went down to try to go to war against Egypt for a second time and get some success. And he was stopped. Remember that story? He was stopped by a Roman The Romans were just beginning to flex and to become an increasingly big world power. And we know that Rome replaced Greece in the statue of (laughs) Gentile nations. So Antiochus Epiphanes was stopped by a Roman and given an ultimatum, drew a circle around him. You decide before you step out of the circle if you're going to go fight Egypt, which I'm saying you will not do, or you go back home. And Antiochus knew he was caught. And in a rage, he went back home, marching through Israel, and that was where he did all the devastations to Israel, destroying their temple, building an altar to Zeus in the holy place, offering a pig. His rage that he felt at being thwarted in his battle against Egypt, he just poured out on Israel. So, we came to the end of 35, and then last week, 
we started with 36 and talked through the rest of chapter 11, and this part of the chapter has not yet been fulfilled. So, we realize that in the last part of Daniel 11, we're reading descriptions of the coming Antichrist and his devastating behavior against Israel in the future. And I think my big, big paradigm shift in that chapter is the clear realization that between verse 35 with the end of Antiochus and verse 36, where we start to read about the Antichrist, there is nothing recorded about the intervening 2,500 years in which we stand now. (laughs) So, there's a gap. And we could say those first verses in Daniel 11 took us up almost to the end of the 69 weeks of Daniel 9. And the last part described the 70th week of Daniel 9. And there's a big gap of over 2,000 years between the two, and we don't know how long it is. So, here we are in chapter 12, and we discover that these first three verses of chapter 12 are actually the ending of what happens at the end of the reign of terror of the Antichrist. So, Nikki, when we read chapter 1, it starts out with, Now, at that time, Michael the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people will arise. What is that time at that time? That time is what we read in the previous chapter, so that the chapter breaks are not inspired. Right. So, this is all one letter, and these verses continue the vision that Daniel was having that we read about last week. And at that time is the time of the Antichrist, who will have power until the indignation is over. Yes. And this vision, it's worth reminding ourselves, we've said this every week, but it's so significant that I think we need to remember it again. This vision began in chapter 10 and is going clear through chapter 12. This is Daniel's last vision. It's taking up three chapters in his book. And who is this vision concerning Israel. Yes, and we know that because in chapter 10, verse 14, the angel who comes to Daniel says, Now I have come to give you an understanding of what will happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision pertains to the days yet future. And I know that there are Christians everywhere who go, Well, yes, but that could include the church, that could include the the believers in the future. But We have to say, we are reading this book again using the hermeneutic we've used for all the rest of the books we've talked about. Would you please refresh us on that hermeneutic again? Yeah, we use the historical grammatical hermeneutic. And so, when you follow the rules of that hermeneutic, this is clearly Israel. Israel is the audience. It's written for Israel. It's in Hebrew. One of the things that's interesting to me is the visions that were given to the kings and to Daniel about the Gentile nations were written in Aramaic and they were explained to kings and rulers in the Gentile world for them to know, for them to hear. It was for them to understand through Daniel. Yeah. But these visions that were for Israel weren't explained to any Gentile kings. They were given to Daniel and they are about your people, Daniel. In Hebrew. In Hebrew. Just by the by, I'm not making a connection here that says because of this, then that. I'm just saying, let's not forget that when Israel was formed as a modern nation in 1948, the prime minister of the new nation of Israel decreed that the new national language would be, of all things, Hebrew. It had been a dead language for thousands of years, only used by scholars. And now it is the national language in Israel. Now, I'm not saying Israel is a believing nation or anything like that. I'm only saying that this angel gave these visions in Hebrew, told Daniel it was for his people, who was Israel, and the modern nation of Israel is speaking Hebrew again. So, these things would be accessible both in any translation they wanted in the world or in their native national tongue. I just find that so interesting. It really is. It's very interesting. And we know that the words of Scripture in their original language are inerrant. God chose for those portions of Daniel to be written in Hebrew. And in the words of J. Vernon McGee, this is just a brief little thing that I thought was so pithy. He said, this is positively 
this vision, this designation of your people. This is positively the nation Israel. Otherwise, the language has no meaning whatsoever. Mm-hmm. And I think, exactly. The words have to mean what the words say, or we are left deciding for ourselves what the words mean. And we don't have the ability to comprehend what's unknown to us. We just have to go with these words were given by God, and we take them at face value, even if we don't understand them all. And one of the things that's important to us in the historical grammatical hermeneutic is the context, the geographical context even matters. And so when we look at these visions and how they're explained and how they're described, and we're listening to the angel talk about the king of the south and the king of the north and the king of the east and the west, it's all in the context of Israel's location, geographic location. Yes. And we've seen so much of that fulfilled in history, and it was all incredibly accurate. I don't understand how we can argue with who the intended audience is here. I agree. I think it's very clear. So in verse one, as you've said, the angel starts with at that time, and that is the time of the tribulation under the Antichrist, which is described in detail in chapter 11. So we read in verse 1 that at that time, when the tribulation is going ahead full speed under the Antichrist, as described in the previous chapter, at that time, something happens in what some people call in the heavenlies. And what is that? It says, now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people will arise. Wow, Nikki. So Michael is a prince And we learned that in chapter 10, Mm -hmm. but here it is reiterated again. He's prince over whom? Over Israel. He stands guard over the sons of your people. That's Israel. And you know, that tells me that if Michael is the one who stands guard over Israel, this is back when Daniel was alive. This must have been true prior to Daniel's day and must be true even today, because this is now talking about the coming tribulation, which has not happened. Yes, and we see Michael on the scene in Revelation as well, battling the dragon. Yes. Now, before we talk about what Michael is going to do, I think it's worth mentioning. This is one of those subjects about which Adventism has made a doctrine, and it's been a very bad doctrine. Adventism teaches, even though some Adventists say they never learned it, it's still a doctrine of Adventism that... Michael the Archangel is Jesus, Mm -hmm. or Jesus is Michael the Archangel. Now, when you ask an Adventist about that, they'll go, oh, yeah, yeah, it doesn't mean Jesus is an angel, it just means Michael is another name for Jesus. But that is a straw man argument, if you want to say that, because Michael has a distinct identity, and he's identified here in the book of Daniel. But it's so interesting to me that Adventists use Jude as their primary proof text for trying to make Michael Jesus. And here's the verse in Jude that they use. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Adventists have said that that text equates Michael with Jesus. Now, Just off the top, Nikki, what's your response to that? It's a terrible proof text. (laughs) It is. Why? Well, it says right in the text that Michael is an archangel and Jesus is not an angel. And when Jesus walked the earth, he had no trouble rebuking demons on his own. Directly to their face. So now we're talking about God the Son not presuming to pronounce a blasphemous judgment against Satan. I mean, even in the wilderness, when Jesus was sent by the Spirit to be tempted after his baptism, he directly confronted Satan, Mm -hmm. silencing him, stopping him with the words of Scripture, his own words given to contradict Satan. He does not have any trouble pronouncing a blasphemous judgment against Satan. So, that's the Adventist proof text. It's such a funny thing, Nikki, that right before we do this particular verse— I've had two different emails in the last week from two different people wanting some sort of evidence or source for the Adventist argument about Michael and Jesus. Mm. Like, one woman wrote and said, my husband won't believe quotes that I see on a piece of paper unless he has an original source. Where did this happen? What Can you give me an original source? Well, yes. (laughs) 
By the way, if any of you want to look this up, you can go to the Ellen White Estate website, and they have online writings of Ellen White, and that's where I found these two quotes that I'm going to read. And I want you to notice the contrast. These are straight from Ellen White. The first one is from the Review and Herald, March 3, 1874, paragraph 13, just by the way. Here's what she said. Christ resurrected Moses and took him to heaven. This enraged Satan, and he accused the Son of God of invading his dominion by robbing the grave of his lawful prey. Jude says of the resurrection of Moses, Yet Michael the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses, durst not bring about him a railing accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke thee. I can't find the line of logic in this. No. But she's clearly equating Christ resurrecting Moses with Michael the archangel disputing and not bringing a railing accusation. She doesn't say Christ is Michael, but she equates it by saying Christ resurrected Moses and then quotes Jude. But in case you want more evidence, listen to how this next quote is very similar to the first, but she switches the subject of the sentence. This next quote is from Spiritual Gifts, Volume 1, page 43. I saw that Moses passed through death, but Michael came down and gave him life before he saw corruption. Satan claimed the body as his, but Michael resurrected Moses and took him to heaven. The devil tried to hold his body and railed out bitterly against God, denounced him as unjust and taking from him his prey. But Michael did not rebuke the devil, although it was through his temptation and power that God's servant had fallen. Christ meekly referred him to his father, saying, The Lord rebuke thee. And there she clearly calls Jesus Michael. And you know what? She makes Moses the first fruits. Yes, she does. Not Jesus. Absolutely. And if any of you want to know how you can know for sure Moses was not resurrected, besides seeing how Ellen White twisted this, the Bible doesn't say he was resurrected, but the Bible does say Jesus is the first fruits from the grave. It's not Moses. And I just want to point out that in this last quote I read, Ellen says, Michael resurrected Moses And then said, Christ meekly referred Satan to his father, saying, the Lord rebuke thee. So she actually names Christ as not rebuking Satan and equates him with Michael by saying, Michael resurrected Moses. She makes no distinction between the two. No, she quoted Michael and attributed it to Christ. Yes, exactly. That's heresy. And it's important, and I think that that it's worth mentioning, even in the context of Daniel here, This is important to them because you have Moses and Elijah at the Mount of Transfiguration. And in Adventism, they don't believe that when the body dies, the spirit returns to the Lord. So in order to have Moses there, he had to have been resurrected. And this is how she tries to prove that. So then when we look in Daniel verse 2, it says, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. And there again, you have the image of sleep. When the Bible talks about death and the Adventists jump on that and say, see, see, there are no spirits with the Lord in heaven. When you die, you're in the dust. And they refer to this as soul sleep. But this is not a verse no. that supports soul sleep. And Moses was not resurrected. Three ways Ellen was wrong in this verse. Moses was not resurrected. Michael did not resurrect Moses. Michael is not Jesus. There were three ways Ellen misled Adventism through Jude 9, and we just have to mention that because here is Michael standing up in verse 1 of chapter 12 of Daniel, and we have to know who it is that's standing up. This is not Jesus. After we read that he stands up to guard your people, what does the vision show Daniel that is next? There will be a time of distress. Explain that. So he says this time of distress will be greater than any that has ever occurred since there was a nation. But at that same time, Israel, everyone who is found written in the book will be rescued. And I think that that is such an important thing to highlight there. Everyone who is found written in the book. This is believing Israel. Yes. At this point. Yes. Israel comes to faith. This is not talking about the intervening years, the church, Pentecost, born again. This is talking 
to Daniel about Israel. If there's going to be a great tribulation against the people of Daniel, and Michael is going to rise up and come to their defense, how do we know that that is actually what happens? I mean, how do we know we're interpreting this right? That there's this time of trouble in which Israel will be the primary object and that Michael will come to their defense. Where else can we find text to support that? Sure. Well, Revelation chapter 12, verses 7 to 9 fleshes this out a little bit. And you asked how we can know that this is Israel. And that's just, again, all the context, the yes. grammar, just reading what the words say. So Revelation 12, 7 to 9 says, Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. Now, Adventism says that this verse that you just read is a description of what happened in heaven when mm -hmm. Satan rebelled. How do we know that that's not the case? Well, first of all, the way that Ellen White explains the war in heaven, it doesn't even come close to matching what you read in scripture. No. None of those details, Satan being jealous about Christ being elevated to sonship and accusations that God's law wasn't fair and his campaign in heaven and all of that is extra biblical. That is nowhere in scripture. And this is the verse that they try to anchor it in the Bible with. Correct. And it, it just isn't there. That's right. Now, in the context of Revelation 12, it's really important that the chapter is about Israel. It starts with John seeing a vision that represents Israel, a woman with a crown of 12 stars on her head. And then it goes through describing what's going on. He sees another sign. He sees a sign of the red dragon who's waiting to devour the child that this woman is about to bring forth. And we know from the context, it's very clear, this is describing Jesus the Messiah being born from Israel. Mm -hmm. It, then it goes on to say, he would rule the nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and his throne. And then the woman fled into the wilderness, where she had a place prepared by God so they heard she would be nourished for 1,260 days. There's a period of time again. And then the next thing we see in this chapter in Revelation 12 is that there is war in heaven, Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon, and the dragon as his angels waged war, but they weren't strong enough, and Michael succeeded in throwing them out of heaven. Now, it's really interesting that the way this vision of John's occurs, we have this battle with the dragon and Michael after the Messiah is born and taken up to heaven. Mm -hmm. So when we see in Daniel 12 that a terrible time of persecution is coming and that Michael rises up and defends his people, that's what we see here only from an upstairs view instead of a downstairs view. We mm -hmm. see Michael fighting the dragon who's trying to destroy Israel. You know, the first time I heard this after leaving Adventism, I was completely confused because I had all that pre-creation history in my head. And the way I understood it, God kicked Satan out of heaven and put him in the Garden of Eden. And that was his prison and he couldn't yes. leave or do anything else. But then there's Job. Yes. And you have him speaking to God about Job. There's a lot of stuff that we don't actually have answers to. That's right. But the picture that we have in our head of Satan. It all comes from Alan. It does. It doesn't come from the Bible. Mm -mm. And even though we can't explain to you a strict timeline here, we can say that the context of these verses suggests that Michael fighting the dragon does not happen before creation. That's something that happens when he's defending Israel against a terrible time of trouble that the dragon is carrying out against Daniel's people. We also know that there are other verses that predict and foretell this time of trouble. And I think that even though we've read them all in different contexts, I think seeing them in the light of Daniel 12.1 is very interesting. For example, in Matthew 24, 21 and 22, Jesus said, For then there will be great tribulation, 
such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. There's that verse, Nikki. (laughs) And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Jesus is describing the same terrible tribulation that the angel is revealing to Daniel. Um, another text is Romans eleven twenty five to 27, where Paul says this, Lest you be wise in your own sight, and remember, he is writing to the church in Rome, to the church, Gentile and Jews together. I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved, as it is written. And here he quotes the Old Testament. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. And Jeremiah also prophesied this coming time of trouble. Jeremiah 30, 1 to 7. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. Write in a book all the words that I have spoken to you. For behold... Days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people, Israel and Judah, says the Lord, and I will bring them back to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they shall take possession of it. These are the words that the Lord spoke concerning Israel and Judah. Thus says the Lord, we have heard a cry of panic, of terror, and no peace. Ask now and see, can a man bear a child? Why then do I see every man with his hands on his stomach like a woman in labor? Why has every face turned pale? Alas, that day is so great, there is none like it. It is a time of distress for Jacob, yet he shall be saved out of it. At that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. That's amazing. And you know, one of the arguments that I hear when people say, no, no, there's not a future for Israel, you have it wrong. One of the things they say is that's universalism, the idea that all of Israel is going to be saved. But the text is very clear. This is a remnant of Israel. Yes. This is believing Israel. These are those whose names were written in the book of life before the foundation of the earth. Yes. Isn't that interesting in just a few words in verse one here? That's how the verse ends. Those who are written in the book will be rescued. Mm -hmm. It's also interesting to me that Revelation 13, five through eight describes the same time of trouble. And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. That's three and a half years, by the way. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. And that's the same thing we read in this first verse of Daniel, chapter 12. And there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. So we see here that the context of verse 1 is the nation of Israel. Michael is the great prince who stands guard over them, over the son of Daniel's people, Israel. He will arise to guard the people of Daniel during the unprecedented times of distress, and all of Daniel's people whose names are written in the book will be rescued from this terrible trouble. This is amazing. And as we line these verses up with other verses in Scripture, we start kind of playing with the concept of the rapture of the church and, yeah. and Israel. And that's that's another thing that the Adventists like to mock, <laughs> just completely mock. You know, they say there is no secret rapture. Well, I don't see secret I don't either. in Scripture, Mm-mm. but... We do have passages that talk about different resurrections and different comings of Christ. You had us read from Matthew a moment ago, 
where it's talking about this great tribulation in there. Again, Jesus is speaking to a Jewish audience yes, he is. before the cross, and he's letting them know what's going to happen to their people. Mm-hmm. But we have different descriptions of all of these things, all of these resurrections in the New Testament now that here we live all these years after the birth of the church. So we get to verse 2. Mm-hmm. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. And contained in this verse, we have a couple different resurrections, don't we? We do. I thought it was really interesting that this reference to everlasting life is the only reference to everlasting life in the Old Testament. What an amazing thing God revealed to Daniel. It is amazing. And then we also have everlasting contempt. That is not annihilation. No, it isn't. No, it isn't. If I'm annihilated, contempt doesn't exist Mm -mm. for me. It's interesting that there are clearly two groups mentioned in verse 2 of Daniel. Because the angel says to him, after he says, many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, then he says, these, meaning one part of that group, to everlasting life. You know, picture the angel pointing to two groups of resurrected people. These to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Now, Jesus referenced these two resurrections in John 5. John 5, 25 to 30 says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, this is Jesus talking, An hour is coming, and now is here, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Jesus clearly describes two groups, two resurrections. And by the way, resurrection is a physical term. It is never used in the Bible to describe spiritual rebirth. That is called born again. That is called being born of God. That is called being made a new creation. But resurrection is a physical term, and it means you come out of the grave with a body like Jesus did when he was resurrected. So Jesus is clearly saying there's going to be two kinds of resurrections here. One, to the resurrection of life, and another, to the resurrection of judgment. So when I read John 5, 25 through 30, and I read him talking about the resurrection of life and the resurrection of judgment, I'm immediately taken in my mind to Revelation chapter 20. Beginning in verse 4, we read about two different resurrections, one for life, one for judgment. Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God in Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. So we have this first resurrection of life. Mm -hmm. And then at the end of that thousand years, as you get to the end of the chapter, you have others who are resurrected and the books are open and they're judged. And set to eternal judgment. There's other places as well, not as clear as the Revelation passage, because it's Old Testament. Life and immortality, and I might say eternal judgment, were made clear, as Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 1.10, they were made clear by the gospel. Old Testament saints didn't as clearly see resurrection and eternal life as we do on this side of the cross. But still, the Old Testament hinted at these things. 
Isaiah 26, 19, for example, describes this. Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy, for your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. I think that's such an amazing description. Mm-hmm. And Ezekiel also says this in Ezekiel 37, 11 to 14. Then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. And I just want to point out this angel in Ezekiel is describing not all believers for all time. He's talking about Israel. The angel goes on. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore, prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. This is speaking of Israel. Many people will die during the tribulation that Daniel is learning about here. And some will be trusting God and believing the gospel that they hear during the tribulation, but others will be unbelieving. And that's what we're seeing here. Some will believe, some will not. There will be two resurrections. Now, Colleen, one of the arguments that I hear from people when we have these conversations and we we tell people, trust the words, trust scripture, trust what the Bible says. They'll say, yeah, but the Bible contradicts itself. It describes things differently in different places. It depends on who's writing. And I remember feeling that way oh, before I really too. had the church in Israel figured out. There are different descriptions of Christ coming back. There are. You have him coming with the saints to gather the saints but then you also have him coming with angels on horses. And and it confused me, like, which is it? Sometimes yeah. he's coming to call us up to the air. Sometimes he's coming and he's stepping on the Mount of Olives. So how do you reconcile all of those contradictions? And when I came to understand that there are phases to his second coming, just like there were to his first. Yes. And that there are different audiences in view here. And I started to notice that... One description was very consistent for one audience, Mm -hmm. and the other description was very consistent for the other audience across the New Testament and the Old, really. Right. You begin to see a picture that we couldn't have even imagined in Adventism. That's true. They didn't want us to see a resurrection for the church. No, because they were the church, and they were Israel, and they had conflated themselves with the nation. At the cost of causing people to question the veracity of Scripture. Exactly. Now, Nikki, there's a really amazing key passage that describes in the New Testament the resurrection of the saints in Christ, which is different from the nation of Israel, because I have to say in Daniel 12 here, the the nation of Israel was never described as being in Christ. Even believing Israel was not in Christ. Christ had not yet come. These were people who either believed God or didn't. They believed and trusted him and did his will, or they didn't. That's what's being described here. But what is the passage that describes the resurrection of the saints in the New Testament? This is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And, you know, I remember hearing people say, oh, the word rapture is not in the Bible. Well, the Greek word harpazo is, and that's what it means. To be caught up. That's what it means. Caught up. So this is the central passage for that. Paul writes, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together 
Harpazo, Mm -hmm. (laughs) caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Now, this says that Jesus brings with him those who have fallen asleep. These are the spirits of those who had fallen asleep. They're with the Lord when he comes back to get us. In Christ. They're in Christ. Mm -hmm. And if you don't believe me, go and read the end of chapter three when it talks about Jesus coming back with the saints. So we have him coming with the saints for the saints. That's right. But the spirits of the saints who have fallen asleep in Christ are going to receive their bodies and then we will be caught up with them. That's a really important distinction. It really wasn't until I read a very simple sentence in J. Vernon McGee's commentary on this passage that I realized the significance in 1 Thessalonians 4 of the fact that Jesus is coming back with those who have fallen asleep and that those who are asleep in Christ will rise first. The people who are asleep in Christ are the church, Mm -hmm. the new covenant believers. This is a new covenant blessing and a new covenant promise that is not part of the old covenant. No, God does not abandon his people who believed in him in the Old Testament. They don't annihilate at death. They go to be somewhere in paradise. We don't know exactly how that's described or what it looks like, but the story Jesus told of the rich man and Lazarus refers to the bosom of Abraham, and that is a Jewish way of talking about where believing people, their spirits go when they die. So, yes, they're not annihilated, but they're not those who are in Christ. Only the church is in Christ, because the new covenant was inaugurated by Jesus on the cross, when he shed his blood, and he gave the Lord's Supper as our remembrance of it. The night before he died, he says, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. And then he rose from death, broke the power of sin, and all of us who believe are in Christ. That's who's being described in First Thessalonians. First Thessalonians is not describing believing Israel. They were old covenant saints, We are new covenant saints. And you know, I also want to say, I've had so many people over the years say to me, oh, you've just been reading that false teacher Darby from the 19th century. No, you know what? I've never read Darby. I did not get any of this from Darby. I'm not even sure of all the permutations of the idea of dispensationalism. I am talking about what I see here in the Word. And 1 Thessalonians is describing a group of people that's different from the people the angel is describing to Daniel. So when the angel's talking to Daniel, he's talking about Israel. And that's different from the church. And I just want to say that because this explains why, as you said, Nikki, there's different descriptions of the resurrection. This one says, he comes in the clouds and we're caught up to meet him in the air and we'll be with him forever. We, the church. And he told his church that this would happen that same night that he gave them the bread and the wine to remember him. He said, I'm going to my father's house and I'm preparing a place for you so that I can come back and take you there to be where I am. Yes. How do we know that his coming back for Israel is different? How do we know that this coming back at the end of the tribulation is different from the rapture one that we read in 1 Thessalonians? It's described differently. When he comes for the church, he comes for the church. When he comes back at at the end, it's to pour out punishment on the earth. That's right. It's a different description. It's a different coming. That's right. The other thing, too, is this passage in Thessalonians is not directly related to the millennial kingdom. No. But when he comes back at the end of the tribulation, it immediately precedes that millennial kingdom. That's right. And it's important to notice that this description of the rapture does not have a time frame associated Mm -hmm. with it. We cannot say absolutely with certainty when it will happen because we're just not told. But we are told that this description of the coming for the saints of the church is different from the one when he comes at the end of the tribulation, right prior to the millennial kingdom. 
you know, the other thing that you have to get used to when you leave Adventism are all of these isms and ideas that are in the true body of Christ, all of the different perspectives on these matters, pre-trib rapture, mid-trib rapture, post-trib rapture. It's all people trying to make sense of the text. It's not a dividing issue. That's right. And I think that's important to point out. We're landing in places pretty firmly, but based on our hermeneutic, not our opinion or desire or Darby, like you suggested. Some of these people who get to these different conclusions in the body of Christ, some of them are using a different hermeneutic. And while I can't teach all of the hermeneutics, there are ways to go and, and figure out how people get where they get. And just again, we're using the historical grammatical hermeneutic. Because that is the way we can take the words at face value instead of assigning alternate or symbolic meanings to them. Mm -hmm. Then we come to verse 3. After the resurrection, after we're told that there's going to be two groups resurrected, what does verse 3 tell us? It says, those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven and those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. It's absolutely beautiful language. And I I feel like I can understand what it's describing because when I was given the gospel by a handful of very brave former Adventists, (laughs) you guys told me, hey, Adventism has a different Jesus. Adventism has a different gospel. There aren't a lot of people who have the courage to say so clearly when something is false. And when I received the true gospel, when I heard it, blessed are the feet of those who come with good news. I don't know the text, but but I know that feeling. I know that, um, that brightness and that, that glory. And so when we read that those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven, those who lead the many to righteousness, like the stars forever and ever, there's something so beautiful about those who share the truth of God's word and the darker the place that they share it in, the brighter they shine. That's so true. It's just, I don't know. It's amazing word picture that reflects my experience when I came to faith. Mine too, actually. Now, I think it's interesting that in this verse, Daniel is learning that there's this remnant, these people who will be resurrected for eternal life or who will be rescued from the tribulation. There will be righteous people in the tribulation who will be evangelizing and leading people to Christ in the tribulation. And in the darkness of the worst of human history— They will shine like stars in heaven. There will be new believers that come out of the tribulation. The tribulation saints will be a real thing. And again, we can see that in the revelation that John is given. When we see 144,000 Jews are going to receive the Holy Spirit, they're going to believe. And we have two witnesses who are going to go and evangelize. We are going to have... The truth of God here, even during this really dark and difficult time in Earth's history. I love this picture of Isaiah fifty three eleven in connection with Daniel twelve verse three. This is about Jesus. It's a passage describing the suffering servant, and it says, "Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant." make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. And what I think is so interesting about this, which is clearly about Jesus, what we see when we look at Daniel 3 in connection with this verse from Isaiah, the righteous ones in the tribulation will lead many to righteousness, to the knowledge of Christ during the time of Jacob's trouble, the worst time of trouble ever seen on the earth since there was a nation. And If we use the picture painted by Isaiah in verse 11 of 53, as people come to trust Jesus in the tribulation, the suffering servant will bear their iniquities right there in the middle of their trouble, and they will be counted righteous even as they suffer. These tribulation evangelists will shine like the stars because they're bringing these people the truth about Jesus who has already suffered in their place who knows what they're going through, and is bearing their pain as they walk through this tribulation. And this is what the church is called today to do, to lead many to righteousness, 
Philippians 2, 14 to 16 says, To us who believe in the new covenant, do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ, I, Paul, may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. So we see in these first three verses, trying to do a little summary of what we've just gone through, the tribulation will be a time when Daniel's people, the Israelites, will be directly attacked by the Antichrist and his followers. Michael the archangel, the prince of Daniel's people, will arise and defend Israel, and everyone found written in the book will be rescued. Many will rise from the ground, the righteous will rise to everlasting life, the wicked to everlasting contempt and disgrace. This resurrection is not the rapture of the church. This resurrection is about the nation of Israel, the tribulation saints and those who believed God in the Old Testament, and it occurs at the end of the tribulation. Those who are faithful in the tribulation The Jews, for example, named in Revelation 7, the 144,000, they shine like the stars and they lead others to righteousness even during the time of trouble. There will be a harvest of people coming to know the gospel, coming to believe in their true Savior during the tribulation. This passage speaks of eternal life, the only place this phrase is used in the Old Testament, and a resurrection suggesting two parts, definitely two groups. That's also described here. But these resurrected people are not those who are in Christ. These are the Old Testament believers before Christ and the tribulation saints who come to faith in the tribulation, both Jew and Gentile. And just lest there be any question, those who come to faith in the tribulation will come to faith in Christ, because He has come. He has finished His work. But the resurrection being described here is of the Old Testament saints and those who have died in the tribulation who are coming to faith then. These are people from Israel and Gentiles who believe during the tribulation, but primarily this is a prophecy of Daniel's people, Israel. And the church has a separate resurrection for those in Christ. As we look at this, as we look at the beginning of this last chapter of Daniel, which surprisingly tells us so much that's revealed a little more fully in the New Testament and in other places in the prophecies of the Old Testament, we see that God is sovereign. There's nothing left to chance. He is on the throne. He has a timeline, and everything is going to come to pass exactly as he said. Just as the first part of Daniel 11 has come to pass and has been fulfilled in minute detail, provable by looking at historical records, so will the last part of Daniel 11, and so will chapter 12. Now, If you're looking at this, if you're listening to this and reading Daniel today, when you're hearing this, and you have never trusted the Messiah, the one whom the Old Testament foretold, the one who actually came in the flesh and lived a perfect and sinless life, who died a perfect and sinless death, but took your sins in his body on the cross, who died was buried, and who rose to life on the third day, according to Scripture, if you have never trusted Him, this is the time to do it. You can absolutely be assured that you will pass from death to life when you hear the gospel of your salvation and believe. The Holy Spirit will seal you, as promised in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, and you can walk through whatever the future holds, knowing you're safe in the hands of your Savior, who gave his life to save you, and who prophesied all that was coming on the world, so we don't have to be surprised. We hope you'll visit proclamationmagazine.com to sign up for our annual conference coming up on February 17 to 19. And until we see you there, join us next week as we finish Daniel chapter 12. We'll see you then. 
Thank you for listening to Former Adventist Podcast. You may email us at formeradventist at gmail.com. Former Adventist Podcast is a ministry of Life Assurance Ministries. For more information, weekly articles, videos, and a donation link, go to our website at proclamationmagazine.com.